One of the most common and most important issues I deal with as a pastor is the issue of assurance of salvation in people's lives. People who take seriously their eternal destiny want to know how they can be certain of their salvation, and when there is doubt, it plagues them. I have lost count of the number of people I have talked with through the years who were plagued by doubts or uncertainties regarding their salvation. It is a crucial issue, to say the least. It can paralyze a person emotionally and spiritually. So how can we know that we are saved and we belong to the Lord? In one sense, it is simple because the answer to the question is very basic. If you have repented of your sin and received Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. John 1.12 says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's that basic. If you have Jesus Christ in your life as your own personal Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. You are a child of God and headed for heaven with Him. However, we all know that there are people who claim to have such, but their lives contradict their claims. There are people who claim to believe in God and claim to believe in Jesus Christ, but their belief is only intellectual assent in the same way that demons believe in God and demons believe in Jesus Christ. James 2.19 talks about that kind of belief. The demons believe in God and believe in Jesus in the sense that the demons know God and Jesus exists. But it doesn't change what the demons are and it doesn't change what the demons do. That is obviously not saving faith. That is a kind of belief that is not saving faith. So even though the assurance of our salvation is based on the simple fact of us believing in Jesus Christ, the Bible often gives us objective tests or evidences of what salvation looks like in a person's life. The letter we have been studying lately is filled with passages like that, and we'll see one of them this morning. Let's turn together once again to 1 John chapter 2, over near the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2. And please follow along as I read, begin reading in verse 3, although our text of consideration this morning is actually verses 7 and 8. But begin in verse 3 to get the context of this paragraph. 1 John chapter 2. Now, by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, (coughs) truly the love of God is perfected or has been accomplished or completed in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which is true, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In verses 3 through 5 of this chapter, which we covered a couple messages ago, John has been talking about obedience as an assurance of salvation. So it is a natural transition for him to talk about the Lord's commandments. If obedience to the Lord's commandments is a mark or indicator of salvation, then it stands to reason that someone would wonder what the Lord's commandments are. So in verses 7 through 11, John answers that question by mentioning one of the most important commandments the Lord ever gave. In doing so, John presents another objective test or indicator of genuine salvation. There are actually three here in this letter. Let me mention them to you by way of introduction into our text this morning. The three tests or indicators of genuine salvation that John mentions in this letter are, number one, the moral test, number two, the social test, and number three, the doctrinal test. The moral test of salvation is the one we've already seen, and that is the test of obedience. The social test of salvation is the one we'll be introduced to this morning. That is the social test of love. And the doctrinal test of salvation is the test of truth. Now let me say that again. The moral test of salvation is the test of obedience. The social test of salvation is the test of love. And the doctrinal test of salvation is the test of truth. These were very important to John as he wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 6 deal with the moral test of obedience or righteousness. Verses 7 through 11, and more specifically, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, deal with the social test of love. And verses 18 through 27 of this chapter deal with the doctrinal test of truth or belief in Jesus Christ. Now, we've already looked at the first of these, which is the test of obedience or righteousness as set forth in verses 3 through 6. In those verses, the Holy Spirit tells us that the person who truly knows God and truly knows Jesus Christ will grow in righteousness or obedience. It does not mean that we will be sinless, because chapter 1 clearly tells us that the person who claims to be sinless is lying. So the issue is not perfection. The issue is direction. The direction of a person's life who truly knows God and truly knows Jesus Christ will be a direction toward righteousness or obedience. This does not mean that a true Christian can't sin. This does not mean that a true Christian can't fall or can't fail or can't even get sidetracked for a period of time. A true child of God can do any of those things. But if you look at the big picture of a person's life as a whole, it will be characterized by obedience and will be moving toward righteousness. 
It's sort of like a graph that all of us have seen at one time or another. A graph that steadily moves upward, though there are dips and drops along the way, and even some flat lines along the way. So that's the first test or indicator of salvation mentioned in this letter, which is the test of obedience or the test of righteousness. That is the moral test. This morning, we come to the second indicator or test of salvation, which is the social test of love. John will introduce that here in chapter 2, but he will get very specific about it over in chapter 3. Notice how John introduces this topic. He says in verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Notice that John begins with an address of endearment. He refers to his readers as brethren or dear friends or beloved ones, depending on your translation. All three of those terms are terms that communicated John's genuine love for the people to whom he was writing. John was a man who genuinely and deeply loved God's people with all their faults and flaws and shortcomings. If you remember his story, you know he didn't begin this way. When Jesus first called him to be a disciple, he was a very intense man and even a harsh man at times. He and his brother James were nicknamed by Jesus Sons of Thunder. Both of them were thunderous men, even ungentle men at times. But Jesus transformed John into the apostle of love. That transformation is seen in this letter, which was written about 60 years after Jesus had first called John to be a disciple. John had become an example of what it means to love the people of God. He had become an example of what Jesus commanded his disciples to exemplify in their lives. So he prefaces his instruction with this term of endearment, And then he continues. He says in verse 7, Brethren or beloved ones, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. John begins his instruction here by saying that what he is about to write isn't really anything new. It's an old commandment because it's something stated by God all the way back in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament. And it is something that Jesus had taught in his earthly ministry. So there's a sense in which it's an old commandment. It goes all the way back to the ministry of Jesus and goes back even further to the days of Moses. It's interesting to note that John doesn't actually state the commandment at this point in his letter. But it is obvious what he's referring to, and he does state it in his next letter. Turn over just a few pages to 2 John, past the little letter of 1 John to the even smaller letter, 2 John, which has only one chapter. And notice what he says as a parallel to what we're looking at in 1 John. 2 John, verse 5. He says, And now I plead with you, lady, uh, as... Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard or had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This is the commandment that John is referring to in 1 John 2. It's obvious he uses the same wording. He refers to it as the commandment we've heard from the beginning, the old commandment, not a new commandment. And that is the exact commandment he is referring to in 1 John 2. That becomes clear as the text unfolds. Now back to our text there in 1 John chapter 2. So John begins by saying that he isn't going to give them something new, But rather, he is going to remind them of something old. All the way back in Leviticus 19.18, God had told his people Israel, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reiterated that command when he gave a two-part answer to the question, What is the greatest commandment in the law? In the second half of his answer, Jesus quoted the words of Leviticus 19.18 by saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not only that, but Jesus also gave that command a new emphasis and a new motivation in John 13.34 and 35. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that is why John could say here in verse 7 that he's not going to write something new to his readers. But then he can turn around in verse 8 and he says he is writing something new. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Now what is John saying here? It sounds confusing. He says, I'm not writing anything new. I'm writing an old commandment. Now I'm writing a new commandment. Well, which is it, John? The commandment to love is not new. But Jesus did give it a new emphasis. And Jesus did give it a new motivation. Jesus said that we are to love like he loved. And he also said that this kind of love would be the hallmark of those who belong to him. Those features give the old commandment a new dimension. Those features give the old commandment of love a new dimension, which is why John could say that there is a sense in which he is writing a new commandment. It is new in that Jesus elevated it along with loving God above all the other commands in the Old Covenant, and it is new in the sense that Jesus modeled it like no one else ever modeled it. He loved his disciples even when they disappointed him. He loved his disciples even when they broke his heart. He loved his followers so much that he even comforted the women who wept as the soldiers led him out to Calvary. That is selfless love. That was a new kind of love that no one had ever seen before. And that's why John says here in verse 8 that there's a sense in which this command to love is new. It was seen in a new way in the Lord Jesus. And it was also being seen in the lives of John's readers to some extent, as the middle phrase of this verse indicates. And then John adds this phrase at the end of verse 8. He says, because... The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Now what does that mean, and how does that fit with John's point? I don't know. But let me give you a suggestion. 
I believe that John is describing the fact that the darkness of this world is passing away and will eventually give way to the true light of the kingdom and eternity. In the kingdom and throughout eternity, we will love one another in this way. This is how we will love one another. We will love one another as Jesus has loved us. So John's point seems to be this. Since this old world will someday be gone and will give way to a new age in which we love one another as we ought to love one another, let's begin practicing it even now. Let's get started now. Later in this chapter, down in verse 17, he says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. In other words, this world is temporal, this world will eventually be gone. So let's make sure that we put our emphasis on things that are eternal. And one of the things that is eternal is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Have you ever stopped to contemplate why, the, that, why love is the greatest? It is the greatest because faith and hope will no longer be necessary when our faith becomes sight, but love will continue throughout all eternity. The day will come, beloved, when faith will no longer be important in your life because faith will become sight. Hope will no longer become import, be important in your life because what we have hoped for, we will realize, we will experience. But there will never come a time, never, when love is irrelevant in your life. So, That is why John says, listen, let's love one another in this new way because the darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. This world is temporal. The day will come when the things of this world will cease, but love will never cease to be important. So let's practice it. So if this commandment is this important, what does love look like in practice? If this is what we're supposed to do, what does it look like? To answer that question, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as you probably know, is called the love chapter of the Bible. Because here the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives one of the greatest definitions and explanations of love that can be found anywhere. This chapter tells us what love looks like in practice. John has exhorted us to love. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, we see Paul defining what that looks like. Notice verse 4. He says, Love suffers long. The New American Standard Bible and the NIV translate this phrase, Love is patient. The word that is used here is makrothemia, which is a combination of two Greek words, makros and thumos. Makros means long, and thumos means anger. So when you put the two words together and form makrothemia, it means a long time before getting angry. Thus the word patient. Understand something, however. This is not emphasizing patience in relation to circumstances, such as changing a flat tire on your car, standing in a long line, or stuck at a red light or in traffic. or No, it's emphasizing patience, not in relation to circumstances, patience in relation to people. 
It is describing the practical outworking of love. If you want to know what love is, if you want to know what love looks like, it is patient with other people. Love suffers long. When someone is really loving, it takes him or her a long time before getting angry with others, and it takes an awful lot for him or her to get angry with others. That's what love is. That's how it looks in practical, everyday life. And beloved, we need to emphasize very strongly that this is the sign of a man or woman who is truly filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I say that because instead, today, we tend to emphasize the wrong things. So many Christians believe that the evidence a person is spirit-filled is if he or she has a lot of Bible knowledge or theological knowledge. Other Christians believe that the evidence a person is spirit-filled is if he or she is able to speak in tongues. Still others would say that the evidence a person is spirit-filled is if he or she is very forward and very outspoken about his or her beliefs. But how about this? One of the most concrete pieces of evidence that a person is spirit-filled is if he or she is patient with other people. A spirit-filled person suffers long. It takes a long time and an awful lot for a spirit-filled person to become angry with someone. Patience is love fleshed out in a practical way, and love is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. This description of love here in verses 4 through 7 is Christianity in blue jeans. It's very practical. It's very down-to-earth. Oh, how easy it is to say that the mark of a strong Christian is knowledge, or the mark of a strong Christian is speaking in tongues, or the mark of a strong Christian is being outspoken. But it's much more difficult to say that the mark of a strong Christian is someone who loves in such a way so as to be patient or long-suffering with others. The same thing could be said for the next descriptive word in verse 4, kind. Love is kind. Did you hear that? Love is kind. Those of us who are committed to standing for the truth and to committed to standing to not compromise the truth need to hear this. For some reason, we tend to think that the only way you can stand for the truth is by being abrasive and harsh. Where is that in the Bible? Beloved, we should stand for the truth. And we should make sure that we don't compromise the truth. But we can do that without having a bunch of rough edges. Tragically, some of the most unkind Christians you will ever meet are those who are committed to an uncompromising stand for the truth. It doesn't have to be that way. Don't deceive yourself and think that you are a strong Christian because you stand for the truth if you are an unkind person. The next phrase in verse 4 says, Love does not envy or is not jealous. Love doesn't desire what someone else has. 
Love doesn't begrudge someone else for what he or she has. Love doesn't do that. Love is not focused on self, but on others. The next phrase in verse 4 says, Love does not parade itself. The New American Standard Bible says, Love does not brag. The NIV says, It does not boast. All three of those descriptive phrases are saying that love is not focused on self and does not concentrate on self and therefore would not go around promoting self. Bragging and boasting are the external manifestations of the next attribute that love is not. The end of verse 4 says love is not puffed up. The New American Standard Bible uses the word arrogant and the NIV uses the word proud. If someone were to ask us to name the trait that is the opposite of love, my guess is that most of us would say the word what? What is the opposite of love? Hate. That's the first word that comes to mind. Now that's not wrong because hate is the opposite of love. But another correct answer would be arrogance. What is the opposite of love? Hate. What is the opposite of love? Arrogance. Love is not arrogant or proud or puffed up. In our culture, we have a phrase that describes someone who is proud, uh, that describes someone who is arrogant. We say that the person is stuck on himself. That's an accurate description. Because when someone is proud or arrogant, then he is stuck on himself. He's focused on himself or she is focused on herself. Love, however, is not focused on self. Love is focused on others. If you want to know one of the reasons why so many marriages fail in our society, it is because there are very few people who really love their spouses. Marriages fail because of of a lack of love. Now that sounds simplistic. And some would say, oh, it's it's far more complicated than that. That's too simplistic. It sounds like a cliche, but it's the truth. So many people go into marriage for what they can get out of it. They want to have their needs met, their wants met, their desires met, their fantasies met, their expectations met. Even when they stand at the altar and commit themselves to love this other person, they often do not grasp what they are really saying. When they say, I love you, they are really saying, I love me and I want you because I think you can meet all my expectations and make me happy. Beloved, hear what the Word of God says in this passage. Love is not arrogant or proud because love is not focused on self. That leads to the next phrase, which is the first phrase in verse 5. It says this, verse 5, it does, love does not behave rudely. What is rudeness? Rudeness is a lack of consideration for another person with the result that you are discourteous. Love is not rude because it does not fail to consider the other person. This is talking about a complete disregard for the other person and his feelings, or a complete disregard for the other person and her feelings. Now, what would cause us to have a complete disregard for someone else and his or her feelings? What would be behind being rude? It would be a focus on self instead of on others. 
That's the opposite of love. As the next phrase says, love does not seek its own way. What that means is love never wants its own way. Boy, does that hit us right between the eyes. How often in life do you want your own way? For me, this happens about, let me see, several times a day. You know what that tells me? It tells me I need to keep growing in love. Love does not demand its own way. Love does not seek to get its own way. Love doesn't have to have its own way. This doesn't mean that it's wrong when things go your way in life. And it doesn't mean it's wrong to enjoy things in life you enjoy. There's no reason to feel guilty about that. God is not a cosmic killjoy. It's not wrong to have desires and have preferences. But when you demand your way, when you have to have your way, when you manipulate circumstances to get your way, you are not acting in love. The next phrase in verse 5 says, love is not provoked. The New American Standard Bible words it the same. The NIV says, is not easily angered. Maybe the best way to render this Greek verb would be to translate it like this. Love is not, are you ready for this? Love is not irritable. Ouch. That hurts, doesn't it? Are you ever irritable? Irritable around your family, your friends, your fellow employees, your co-workers, your teammates, your roommate? Are you ever cranky, contentious, argumentative? Are you ever touchy? Don't worry, I won't ask for a show of hands. If you came here this morning assuming that you are a spiritual giant, then you have been cut down by this passage along with all of us. This, beloved, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, right here. This is where we find out where our hearts are really at. This is where we find out just how genuine our spirituality really is. Love is not irritable. The last phrase in verse 5 says, Love thinks no evil. The New New International Version probably says it best when it says, It keeps no record of wrongs. If you really love someone, as you're supposed to love that person, you don't keep a record. You don't keep a physical record, but you don't keep a mental record. You don't throw up the past. I remember when you did this. I'll never forget when you said this. You know, when some people get in a disagreement, they get hysterical, which is not a healthy way to be. They they get all emotional rather than rationally, logically trying to work through the conflict. They They get hysterical. Some get hysterical, but others get historical because they throw up the past all the time. That's just as unhealthy. Husbands, wives, how are you doing in this area? Do you remember all the times your spouse has hurt you? Do you remember all the times your spouse has disappointed you and upset you and offended you and let you down? Do you have the mental record? Do you have the checklist? That's not love. Love doesn't keep a record. This is what love looks like in practical 
everyday life. Now let's go back to 1 John as we begin to wind down. So in 1 John chapter 2, John reminds us of the importance of this commandment to love. He doesn't define it. Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 13. But John just writes as a reminder, as an emphasis to exhort us. This is something we need to be reminded of regularly. It needs to be brought to our attention. We very easily can forget how central, how crucial this aspect of the Christian life really is. So John says in verse 7, Brethren, beloved, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. As I quoted earlier, in John 13, 35, Jesus said that by loving one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. John, however, in his letter, takes that a step further and says that it is also by love that Christians may know that they are Christians. Did you catch that? Jesus says, by love, all men will know you're my disciples. And John even takes it a step further under the inspiration of the Spirit and says, by love... Christians can know they are Christians. In other words, one of the tests or indications of our salvation is love for others. That is, a Christian may know that he has truly been made alive by Christ when he or she finds himself beginning to love and actually loving those others for whom Christ died. Now maybe you're thinking, that sounds like a stretch. Is that really that definitive? Is that really that specific, that that's how we can know? Look at the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know, there's our word, we know that we have passed from death to life. Well, how do we know, John? Earlier in your letter, you said we know because we keep His commandments. But here he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here John is very specific that this is one of the tests of genuine salvation. This is one of the markers of genuine salvation. It's one of the three. The moral test of obedience or righteousness. The social test of love. The doctrinal test of truth. But for now, John's focus in our text in chapter 2 is on that middle one, the test of love. So I would ask you, how is your love life? Do you really love the people of God with all their faults and flaws and shortcomings? Listen, anyone can love people who are almost perfect. Anyone can love people who are virtually flawless. But the real test of our Christianity is loving people who have a lot of unlovely things about them. That's the real test. Sometimes couples who are struggling will say, yeah, but he is, you know, you don't know my husband. He is so hard to love. Or you don't know my wife. She is so hard to love. Well, it's easy to love people who are easy to love. The test is, can we love people who are not easy to love? 
The old commandment of love has a new dimension to it since Jesus came and modeled it. And this kind of love is going to outlast this passing world and it's going to continue throughout all eternity, says John in verse 8. So we might as well begin practicing it here and now in our relationships. Our relationships within our own families, our relationships within the family of God. Let's practice love. Let's bow together as we close this morning. And I want to encourage you as we close, we have a couple minutes here at the end, to not hurriedly shut your mind down. Forget about what you've seen in God's Word this morning. This is so foundational, so important. It comes up time and time again in Scripture. The centrality of love, the importance of love, the crucial issue of love. So let's not hurry through. Take a moment and think about your love life. Think about the people of God. Do you love them with all their faults and flaws and shortcomings? Or is your love conditional? Is your love the kind that's only expressed toward people who are easy to love? The real test of our Christianity is loving people who have a lot of unlovely things about them. Is that the kind of love that comes from your life? That is a real marker of the grace of God, the saving grace of God in our lives. When we see that kind of love, which is not natural for us. So where the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, maybe in our look at 1 Corinthians 13 and the description of what love is and what love does, where you fall short as I do, make sure you deal with that before the Spirit of God. Confess it where it needs to be confessed. Ask God for grace, for strength, to be able to love like he exhorts us to love. And if you're here today and you say, there's just no way I can love like that, maybe it's because you don't know Jesus Christ. So if there's any doubt in your mind, surrender your life to Jesus Christ today. He can grant the grace, the strength, the power to love like he calls us to love. Father, thank you for how practical your word is. Thank you for how relevant it is, how specific it is. When we see the Apostle John saying, hey, this is, this is an old commandment. It's been around all along. It's nothing new. But there is a new emphasis. There is a new pattern. The Lord Jesus modeled it in a new way and elevated it in a new way. And then when we look at the Apostle Paul's description of it in 1 Corinthians 13, it's a reminder to us of just how important love is. May we not miss this. It's so easy for us to major on other things and to claim that other things are the real assessment of what a strong Christian is. But this is what your word says. This is the emphasis given in your word. So may we be men and women who love who love in the manner we've seen in 1 Corinthians 13, who make this paramount in our lives. And Father, as you grant us the grace, the strength, the ability to love like this, it is such an assurance to us that we belong to you because we recognize that this kind of love doesn't come from ourselves. This kind of love is not natural. 
This kind of love is prompted by and enabled by your blessed Holy Spirit who indwells the hearts and lives of those who belong to you. So no wonder John could use this as an assurance of salvation. And so in closing, we pray for anyone who is gathered here this morning who does not have assurance of salvation because he or she doesn't possess salvation. He or she is not one of your children. May your Holy Spirit open his or her eyes to understand the need to repent, to let go of whatever is holding back, and to turn in genuine faith, childlike faith, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by that, by that work of grace in their hearts through faith in Christ, they would come to be able to call you Father. We pray these things in the precious and exalted name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.